Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We all accept the written and many unwritten rules that govern behavior and conduct. You may disagree with the rules, but our passion and love for the game does not entitle us to break the rules. Now, my fear is that someone could get hurt. Someone who maybe just wanted to escape for a few hours and enjoy the sport we all love. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about what should or shouldn't be allowed in the stadium. Our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to talk about teams struggling to offload their high-priced players. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the art of recruiting for the national team. In our Back 3 segment, we'll be talking about MLS expansion and EPL and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this? We are recording Monday morning. I am very good. Uh, coming off a fun weekend, um, a lot of Bundesliga, and yesterday I went to a barbecue at Keith Costigan's house. How was that? It was good. Uh, a lot of people from work brought their kids, and, and my role in these events is essentially to keep the kids occupied so the grown-ups can talk amongst themselves. Uh, young children take enormous pleasure in beating me up, I've found. <laughs> so you're that guy that is just, you know, the Pied Piper of, of children, for good, for better or worse, from your perspective, uh, at the party. So you're, you're dancing with the kids, you're entertaining the kids. You don't do magic tricks, do you? No, but uh, yeah, I was basically a punching bag. You don't you them. don't sit them you don't sit them down and explain how the game should be played and what players are good and uh, and bore them with any type of Brazilian talk, do you? No, no. Uh, as I say, young kids like to beat me up, and I think uh, some American EPL fans shared that sentiment last week. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm coming to you once again from the road, uh, the East Coast. I will be back in studio next week, back in our uh, friendly confines there. But uh, once again, on the road, uh, I had a wedding back in uh, Detroit that I had to go to. So my travels continue. When I get back, which would be, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, it will mean I have been gone and out of uh, Los Angeles where I live since June 2nd when we left for the Women's World Cup. So it's been a long time on the road, but a wonderful summer of soccer with so many different things that I've been privileged to be able to do. But it'll be fun to get back to Los Angeles, back into the routine in our, in our studio. So next week, I'll be in our, uh, our, our studio there. All right, Moss, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, let's do it. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. 
Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. When we go to a game, we have a shared experience with thousands of people. We don't personally know most of them. Their history, character, and beliefs usually aren't apparent. Our connection is the sport. It may be the only thing we have in common. Outside the stadium, we may lead very separate and different lives. But inside the stadium, we're all together and we're all guests. We all accept the written and many unwritten rules that govern behavior and conduct. We may disagree with the rules, but the rules change and we have the power to influence those rules. But our passion and love for the game does not entitle us to break the rules. A banner, a flag, a song, a chant, or an action that violates the rules, yeah, it's gonna be punished. And this isn't about free speech or censorship or taking sides. It's really about leagues, clubs, and stadiums trying to maintain a safe and enjoyable environment for everyone. And that's not easy because we may all have different definitions of enjoyable. Recently, American soccer has debated if political messages should be allowed in the stadium. Now, politics is one of the few things in life that arouse more passion than sports. And today, everything seems to be viewed as political. My fear is that political displays in the stadium, even ones that I agree with, can encourage, incite, and even provoke confrontation, conflict, and violence. And let's be honest, they're all designed to provoke. Now my fear is that someone could get hurt. Someone who maybe just wanted to escape for a few hours and enjoy the sport we all love. And if that happens, we all lose. And it won't matter how righteous, noble, or correct we think we are. All right, so there's my State of the Union for this week. Mossy, am I being old and grumpy? Am I missing something? Am I being uh, unwoke? Uh, or uh, do I have an inability to be progressive or evolved or understand really what's what's at play here when it comes to what happens in the stadium? It's a tricky one. You know, a couple of years ago when that whole issue of Catalan independence was red hot, Barcelona fans brought Catalan flags to a game and UEFA was going to punish them for it. And then they changed their minds and, and they put out this statement. While UEFA does not want football matches to be used for the purposes of political demonstrations, it also would not wish to sanction any club or national association in situations where no reasonable person could object to or be offended by a particular message conveyed at a football match. And we both agreed that the reason MLS didn't punish Bedoya was because he kept his message general enough that nobody could take issue with it, you know, stop gun violence. Uh, so that seems to be the standard here as well. But then you read about a fan being removed from a, a game because uh, they had a banner that said anti-fascism, anti-racism. So, you know, th- I guess I'm struggling to figure out what the line is. I mean, there are certain lines you can't cross, but I mean, determining where that line is is, is what's proving complicated. Yeah, I think that you hit it on the on the head in that that line is going to move and continue to move as... You know, if we're, if we're talking about MLS, if we're talking about NWSL, if we're talking about any league out there, the line is going to continue to move. And it's, it's, I think it's designed to be flexible in order to represent what an owner or what a club or what a league or what a stadium wants. Now, look, there's stuff that's just, just from a safety perspective, as I mentioned in the, in the State of the Union, has to be done in order to, to protect people. The other part of it where I said you're, you're trying to 
encourage and foster an enjoyable situation, an atmosphere, an experience for people, that's where it gets a little su- subjective. Uh, not a little subjective, a lot su- uh, subjective as to what it ultimately is. And I think everyone is kind of left to their own devices to figure out what that is. And it might be different in different stadiums. It might be different in different clubs, leagues, countries, communities. And that's why I said that we, as fans, when we go, we have the power. We have the power to change, or we have the power and the leverage to say, I don't like this environment. This is not something that I want to pay to go and see. And I don't want to be there. And that's where, if you're, a, if, if you're an owner, uh, if you're a club, if you're a league, you have to recognize that the decisions you make can have an effect in how you are viewed externally and how you are v- viewed internally. And from a, a practical business perspective, those decisions have, have ramifications. And once again, do you think, Mossy, when somebody, because this, this is a, an evergreen type of comment when it comes to sports, where people say, I don't want to have politics in shoved in my face when I go to a sporting event. It is an escape. It is, for me, a place where we all come together. Do you think that when people say that, they are somehow either condoning or taking a side in their silence or just being oblivious or disingenuous when they say that? And do you think that it's acceptable for someone to have that as an opinion about what they want from their sporting event. They just want the sport. They don't want to, they don't want to be inundated constantly by things that are provocative, uh, things that are controversial, uh, be it po- politics or anything else in the stadium. No, I think that's an acceptable take. That, frankly, that's where I come down on. Sports is escapism for me, and when I go to a soccer match, all I want to think about for those two hours is that match. But I've also sort of accepted that that train left the station, and sporting events are a stage where you have 50,000 people in one place and millions watching on TV. And it does present a platform where people like to get different messages out now. So I think, you know, we just have to accept that we, we live in a world now where that's just not possible for sports to be completely detached from, from everything else going on in society. And, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was on the uh, old Twitter machine this week and riling up the folks, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which I, I have a habit of doing. And, you know, a lot of people said, because I asked about, you know, I put a picture out there of a supporters club that had put a sign that was, that was both profane and political in nature. And I, w- I wondered aloud on Twitter, as one does, if that was going, if that was appropriate. And do you want that when you go and, s- and see a game? And there were a lot of people that actually responded and said, yes, that's exactly what we want. That's what I want to see. That's what I want my children to see. And, you know, that's, that's certainly an acceptable opinion. But my question would be, would you, whether it's you, Mossy, or somebody else, would you be as accepting and as accommodating and as liable to look the other way, not look the other way, but as I said, accepting, if you didn't agree with the message, because there's, there's a lot of people I think that are accepting and believe that this should be allowed because ultimately they believe in the message. What if, uh, what if the message was something else that was completely, you were diametrically opposed to? Would you still, Mossy, believe that that would be something that's acceptable or that you would want to see? No, you're right. There, there is a hypocrisy there. A lot of people defend free speech when it's speech they agree with, but when it's speech they don't like, then they... Uh, yeah, I'd like to think that I'd be... As long as, again, it, it didn't sort of 
cross this larger line of something that's offensive and it could incite violence. But as we've talked about, that's sort of a, a tricky line uh, to straddle. But yeah, if, if, it, if it didn't cross those lines, I'd like to think that even if it was a message I wasn't totally on board with, that I, I would still defend that person's right to express their opinions. You know, let's be honest. I mean, the elephant in the room here, we don't want to get political at all, but is that we, we, there is a climate in this country now where messages that in the past would not be viewed as overtly political or partisan now are viewed mm-hmm. as such. So, so that's complicating matters too. Uh, now, let me ask you this. Do you have a different standard for players and fans? What if a fan, uh, rather than Alejandro Bedoya, had held up a sign of that game that said, Congress, stop gun violence? Do you think the reaction would have been different? Um, I think it probably would have been different. And once again, there's there's a lot of type of precedent and uncharted territory that whether it's MLS or anybody else is going through. You know, when a guy picks, picks up a microphone on the sideline, that's not something that anybody ever ever has had to dealt with. And we we talked about that before. Um, when it's, I think where it gets, and as I said in the state of you know, where it gets potentially dangerous is when it is a a large group within the stadium. One person here or one person there, and we can talk about whether you know, profanity doesn't really matter if that's something that you don't believe should be in the stadium. It doesn't really matter what you're saying. If you're saying it in a profane, profane way, that's not something that a lot of uh, stadiums want to have as part of their experience. But you know, for even suggesting uh, this week on, uh, on Twitter that that, was, that would not be something necessarily that I would want going to a soccer game, for even suggesting that, uh, I got called every name in the book, even more so than I normally do. I got called uh, a Nazi and a fascist in, in, in essence, saying that because I maybe would suggest that we don't want to have that because of the potential for safety issues, because of the potential of somebody actually getting hurt, that somehow that means that I condone what whatever the opposite side uh, may be. And so when you're saying you don't want fascists and you don't want Nazis and you don't want homophobes and all this, all this kind of stuff. My point in, this, in the State of the Union, Mosque is when you sit down, you are sitting down with thousands of, of people. Some people may be wonderful people. Some people may be completely horrible monsters. All of this type of stuff exists. All of these types of horrible people exist and you go to a game. And these are the things that, that, that people are thinking about, certainly things that I, that I am thinking about. And I don't know. My, my opinion may change over time as to what is acceptable or, or should be acceptable. And it doesn't necessarily, just because you don't want politics in a sporting event, doesn't, make you, doesn't mean that you're not political. doesn't mean that you don't have a set of beliefs or that you're not passionate about certain subjects and are able to talk about them at length. But... You know, to have this, uh, this situation where you're accused of being something uh, or, or you are pigeonholed and boxed into being something simply because you have the audacity to believe that a sporting event should be a sporting event. And by the way, I don't want a, 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 a sports can be dangerous. Sports can be subversive. Sports can, sports can deal with real uh, subjects. I said last week when I was, ta- or a couple weeks ago when I was talking about Alejandro Bedoya, sports, yes, they are an escape, 
but they are not a fantasy. And inevitably, the real world will intrude in a bunch of different ways. And as you mentioned, Mossy, it's going to continue to intrude as everything seems to have a political element to it. But I, I, you know, I guess we can, we can finish up here, and we're not going to solve, uh, solve any of this, is that you know, in my State of the Union, Mossy, I, I, you know, I, I, I thought and I talked about the potential and the possibility for something bad to happen and somebody to get hurt, whether it's you know, a, a, somebody there just for the two hours of escape that gets drawn into a situation, because it is provocative. All of these things are designed to be provocative, to elicit a reaction. And if that reaction ends up being negative, if that reaction ends up being confrontational and physical, there's people out there to say, well, that's the price to pay for exposing this and getting the truth out there. Well, somebody getting hurt that just went to a soccer game because he or she, uh, old or young, a kid, whatever, that's not a price that I'm willing to pay just because you believe that you're right in the message that you are sending out. Mossy, do you think that MLS, which has had a really good job, has done a really good job so far, and, and American soccer in general has done a really good job of keeping a lot of that violence and, and certainly the violence that's tied to political leanings out of the stadiums. Do you think that MLS is heading in a direction where that becomes more prevalent and therefore MLS has to deal with it? Uh my sense is we're still a long way from having the same issues that uh, some of the other sports encounter in this country. I, I still, my, my experiences going to MLS games have been positive. I still think it's a largely civilized crowd. And, you know, if, if, if the thing we're arguing about right now is somebody bringing a sign to a game that says anti-fascism, anti-racism, um, again, as long as we keep it <laughs> on that level, I, th I think we'll be all right. Well, We'll see how this all shakes out. As I said before, each and every week, people are, are testing, in a certain sense, their, their, their clubs and their leagues and their ownership and trying to see what they can get away with, how far they can push. And that's why I said, we have power. Oh, Masi, let me ask you one question. I also riled up people by calling fans guests. And by the way, I, that, I, that includes myself. I believe you are a guest when you go to a stadium, whether you are a fan, whether you are a member of the media, uh, whether you are somebody working in, uh, in soccer or anything like that. We are ultimately guests. Now, you can be a guest and still be a customer. So, because I know a lot of people said, well, why, why am I paying if I'm a guest? Well, you can be a guest and still be a customer. Just go to your hotel. And I think as a guest, you understand and you accept, whether you agree or not is another thing, but you understand and accept what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not acceptable. Do you, do you agree with me when, when I say that fans are guests when they go to a stadium? Yeah, in a, in a manner of speaking, yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the fact that you are buying a ticket sort of is, is a little bit of a <laughs> something to be considered in, in terms of how, how you would define being a guest, but I, I, I think in the, the way you're using that term, I think it's fair. Well, I don't, you know, I mean, I also want to make sure that people understand that just because you're a guest doesn't mean you don't have leverage and power. And it also doesn't mean that from a, an environmental standpoint, the, the environment that you are creating, that you are not integral and you are not important and crucial to the experience that is created. So that, you know, just because I call somebody a guest, I think a lot of people took it as, uh, a, as a negative. Uh, I don't think it is a negative, but I do say that you are a guest in that you are 
required. Yeah, you're required because if you don't, you will get kicked out, you will get punished. And that's what's happening right now for people that either are displaying things that, uh, that are not allowed and that are prohibited or people that are uh, doing things and altercations and conflicts that they do get kicked out, that they do get suspended. And then they scream and yell that you're trampling on my rights and all that stuff. Well, the rights are relative to the rules and regulations that are put down each and every year, I guess, by the leagues and the clubs and the owners. And they might be different. They might be different places. So if I go see a, a, an MLS game in Portland, it might be different than uh, if I go see a NWSL game uh, or if I go see Detroit City FC, which, uh, which I know I went back and forth with because of uh, some of the signage that they have. I'll finish with this, Mossy. Speaking of signage and speaking of, of absolutely um, uh, signage that just was inflammatory. I don't know if you saw the uh, Real Salt Lake game against LAFC this weekend, but behind the goal, behind Nick Ramondo for at least a half, was a huge, huge sign made with uh, love and slash hostility that said, shut up. Alexi. It was wonderful. It was, I, it warmed the cockles of my heart uh, to see that because look, people, people agree, people disagree. This is what we do. But that I, that I am in their head to that extent that they are willing to spend time uh, and effort in making a, uh, a banner and a sign directed at me because they disagree with, uh, with my opinion and then putting it out there. And then by the way, losing uh, and getting shut out. Uh, it was, uh, it was wonderful. And I, I, I'm, I'm joking about it being uh, inflammatory because the reality is I think there's plenty of people out there that would agree. And maybe more people could come together in agreement on that than a lot of the political stances <laughs> that we have out there. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Mossy makes the case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that one of the byproducts of the top heaviness of European football is this phenomenon of the stranded star. Now, I say my case, uh, credit where credit's due. 442 Magazine wrote an excellent piece about this a couple weeks ago, and I'm echoing a lot of their thoughts. We've seen this summer a lot of high-priced big names in this situation in which their current club doesn't want them, is trying to offload them, but is struggling to do so, whether it's Gareth Bale or Paulo Dybala or James Rodriguez, who look like they might remain with their current clubs, or someone like Philippe Coutinho, who Barcelona basically had to give away. And the, the thesis that uh, 442 put forth is that players are competitive, they want to get to the highest level, and there are only a few clubs now that constitute the quote-unquote highest level. And so they all end up forcing their way to those clubs. Those clubs have more money than they know what to do with. So they buy all these players and invariably they don't have room for all of them. So they end up having to offload some of them, but that can prove problematic for a variety of reasons. First of all, they have these high wages that few clubs can afford. Secondly, if they're trying to recoup anything close to what they spent in a transfer fee, very few clubs can afford that. And thirdly, the player doesn't want to accept a step down. So you end up with this scenario where some very good players are twisting in the wind. And I know we talk about how expansion and the salary cap can dilute the talent, but this is the other extreme. 99% of clubs in the world would kill to have a Gareth Bale or a Philippe Coutinho, but they can't afford them while the clubs that can afford them don't want them because they have other high-priced stars already. So... Uh, I think when you look at the landscape of European football, this needs to be another element of this discussion. Isn't it all relative, Mossy, in that when Bale or whoever gets gets bought for this uh, uh, you know astronomical fee, he is getting bought 
to one of the elites and one of the very, very few teams. And this gets back to a super league or whatever you want to call it. So is, is it enough to put these big super clubs, these elite teams off from doing it because they can't pass, pass that on if and when uh, they, they want to sell these players? Or is just this the world we live in? And when you do that, you recognize that your market out there if it doesn't go well or if it just runs its course, is still going to be limited because only a certain amount of teams out there can actually afford to buy it, even at a reduced race if you're selling that player on. No, I think the big clubs are going to keep doing what they're doing. They can't help themselves. I know uh, our good friend Grant Wall came out in favor of a salary cap last week, and I think the mistake Grant made is he acted like it's a given that the same five teams that won the top European leagues last season are going to win them again, which, you know, City only beat Liverpool by one point. Bayern only beat Dortmund by two points. Both of those came down to the last round, and they feel like jump balls this season. So if one of those flips, people are going to act like it shoots down Grant's whole argument when it doesn't, but you know how people are. But as to his larger point about there needing to be a salary cap, uh, I know you've mentioned that in the past. I mean, are you still kind of on that page that that might be the way that European football needs to go? I, I mean, I, I recognize that it is a fantasy uh, in that I don't think that it's ever going to happen because I don't think that those super clubs are going to want that to change. Now, what, what it does, and, and look, I know that there has been a start of a separation in MLS, and you can see it playing out in MLS. As teams are able to spend more and more money, that separation of the have and have-nots occurs. Now, it's nothing relative to the rest of the world. I think that's where Grant was coming from. And, and why I would want to see it was because I want to judge some of these players and coaches in a much more realistic scenario of parity. I want to see, because you mentioned, okay, you know, Grant was, was being, uh, wasn't necessarily being uh, realistic when he talked about, I know who's going to win and everybody's going to win. I think, I think his point was, you know who's going to be at the top. And the reason why they're at the top is because they spend the most money. And you can agree or disagree, but that's just the reality of the situation. Each, you know, each uh, January, people ask me to predict MLS. If I ever find the man or woman that is able to pr- accurately and consistently predict MLS, I will take them to, to Vegas. It is next to impossible given the manufactured parity, and which does include a salary cap. Now, it's, at times it's flexible, and yes, there is that separation, but it's nothing compared to the disparity that exists uh, in other leagues. And so I think that's what he, he was suggesting. And it is an arms race, and it's very, very difficult to get off because if you are one of these super clubs... Now you are judged, well, not now, you've always been judged, but certainly now you are judged by not just the player that you bring in, but the price tag attached. And if and when you make big signings, it's always going to be compared and contrast with what those other super clubs are doing. You have to keep up with the Joneses, and you have to, you have to keep paying. Now, from a player perspective, this is great, because the salaries just go up and up and up and up. But what, what fans do not want to hear is anybody come out and say, I can't pay this amount because it doesn't make business sense. <laughs> the fans don't want to be faced, and look, even, even pundits, we don't want to be faced with the realities of business when it comes to the buying and selling of players and the escalation and inflation uh, that happens when, with regards to the value, value of players today. So I, I agree with you that I don't think it's going to stop because I think it's just very, very difficult for these teams to get off and save face when they are saying we're not going to do it because either we don't we're, we think we're good enough, and while that might work for one year with 
spurs or something like that. Or they say it just doesn't make business sense for us to do something like that. Let me ask you this. For as long as I've been following football, agreeing personal terms with a player it used to be the easy part of a transfer that you got out of the way first and then you tried to negotiate a fee. And what we're seeing a lot this summer is clubs agreeing to a fee, but then the deal falling through because they couldn't agree to personal terms with the player. And I know there's a school of thought out there that if a player is not willing to lower his salary to facilitate a move that makes footballing sense, that he's being greedy and short-sighted there. But we've seen these top players are not willing to take any sort of salary cut. As a former player, how do you see this notion that a player should accept to lower his salary to facilitate a deal? Do you think that's ridiculous? I know in that Sunderland Netflix documentary, they made Jack Rodwell out to be like the worst human being ever because he wouldn't, uh, you know, a contract that he had agreed to with the club and he wasn't willing to <laughs> lower the, the, the money to facilitate a transfer away from the club. I mean, how do you see this whole notion of a player uh, taking a salary cut? No, it's ridiculous to ask a player to take a salary cut that he or she does not want to take in order to accommodate a move. Now, if the player wants the move and everybody's in accord, you get together and you talk about it and you recognize, well, this is what I have to do and this is where I have to uh, be more understanding and maybe I have to take a cut here in order to get to a better place that may lead you on to better things, either because, I don't know, you're playing more or your family likes it more, whatever it, en whatever it ends up being. But... Yeah, that's ridiculous to lambast a, a, a player because he is not or she is not willing to take a cut in their salary, uh, a contract that you signed and you have to live, uh, live up to. But this is where I always say there's, it's, it's back and forth too. So when, uh, you know, I love when, uh, when people talk about how, well, this player is, has played so well that, that they deserve a new contract. And they, they, you, should, you should tear up the old contract and sign a new one. Now, at times, that might be the right thing to do from a business st standpoint from the club. But you're, you're not entitled to have that happen simply because you play well in the same way that you're not entitled, that the club is not entitled to have uh, that happen of either cutting your salary or signing you to a new contract when you won't, don't want to do it. So yeah, you, you live up to the contract that you sign when you are on either side. And you leverage at, at different times uh, a, a situation that you're in and you get the best possible deal that you can possibly get. But I, I don't know why the phenomenon that you just mentioned is happening as to why the personal side of it isn't done. Because by the time that all this stuff gets out publicly, you got to think that the agents... And both clubs, and, and obviously the person involved, the player, will have come to an understanding that, look, in order to do this, these are the, some of the things that are going to have happening. And if, it, if at the 11th hour it comes up, then that's bad management, and that's bad agent, agenting, if that's even a word, and that's, that's somebody along the way dropped the ball. It shouldn't, that shouldn't be the sticking point. I do wish players weren't so consumed all the time with going to the quote-unquote biggest club possible. You know, it's not always the right move in your career to go to Barcelona or Real Madrid. You have to look at the depth chart. Ultimately, I don't think you're going to be happy unless you're playing. And you see these moves where a club feels like a player feels like if a club of that stature comes after you, you have to go, even if they already have like three other world-class players in the same position, and you're putting yourself in a situation that that ultimately is not going to work out well for you, and you're going to end up in, in limbo. So, I mean, that that's the one criticism I would have with players sometimes. 
But you know, it's it's funny because you could even add uh, players like Neymar and Pogba into the d- discussion. Now, in those cases, it's the player trying to force his way out rather than the club trying to offload him. But you do have a lot of instances here around Europe where you have a player that might be stuck this season somewhere where they don't want to be or stuck at a club where they know the club didn't want them to be there. And, you know, we'll have to look at each of these cases individually and see how the player mentally handles this. I mean, there, there were a couple of interesting instances this past weekend. Paulo Dybala, I don't know if you saw, scored an unbelievable goal for yeah, Juventus beautiful. in their last preseason game, which, again, had everybody shaking their head and wondering, why were they spending all summer trying to get rid of this guy? And the other situation that's even more incredible is Gareth Bale managed to hang around enough at Real Madrid, and then Asensio and Hazard got hurt, and so they had no other option. They started him in their first La Liga game of the season, and he played great, helped him beat Celta Vigo, and then Zidane had to kind of sheepishly admit afterwards, well, I guess he's going to stay then. <laughs> so, I mean, some of these situations are going to be kind of, frankly, kind of comical to watch as the season progresses. A guy where the club clearly made it, you know, known throughout the whole summer, we don't want this guy here, and then they end up staying. And and how both uh, player and team handle that is going to be kind of funny to watch. And the ugliness is legendary at times when you have either a disgruntled player or a team that doesn't want a player. And you, you hear tales about being sent down to play with the reserve team or the youth team, being sent to train on your own. And then the other side, you also have players sometimes that that say, well, screw you. I'm going to be a constant reminder and thorn in your side, and I'm not going anywhere unless I do get paid more uh, or paid the equivalent, and I'm just going to sit around. I think, you know, the bail situation, I think it it speaks to the fact that, well, number one, he's playing on one of the great teams in the world. Number two, he's one of the great players of the world. And number three, I think he's a soccer player and a, and a professional and will go out there and do it. But uh, do it. And obviously now, because it didn't happen, they, they did uh, jump the gun. And I don't know if, if it is, you know, how true it is that they, that they just don't want him at all. Or they were just testing, uh, testing the waters, uh, testing the waters out there. I, you know, this the scenario of having a disgruntled player can be toxic, and it can, it can be a real problem for a coach, for a team in the locker room uh, in order to go in order to go forward. And this is that back and forth that I was talking about, where players and agents are doing what they can to force a move. Or clubs are doing what they can in order to force a move. And sometimes it gets really, really ugly. And you got to be above the fray to the extent that you can. But sometimes, as I said, uh, you want to, as a player, you want to say, screw you. And maybe that's a motivational force for uh, Gareth Bale at this point now getting on the field and playing. And as you said... For Zinedine Zidane to, after all of the comments and all of the way that they acted in preseason and leading up to uh, this season here, of sheepishly either saying publicly or privately admitting, you know, while I might not want this guy, I need this guy. And Real Madrid, you know, this is it's not this isn't the greatest Real Madrid team yet again, and so he is going to need all the quality that he has out there. Yep. All right, you're not going anywhere, buddy. We're not selling you at all. Uh, you are here. Even if you want to go, I'm not selling you. I'm going to hold you uh, ransom and, and hostage here until I get the best possible number from somebody out there. Uh, and if not, you're just going to keep performing for us. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for the Ask Alexi segment. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi. You send us your comments and your questions, and whether you agree or you disagree, all that kind of stuff. And then Mossy reads some out. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week in Ask Alexi? All right, first up, at ACDC Maiden Ledzi. 
Do you think Mesut Ozil could be a good fit for DC United? Interesting. So the rumor mill starts to generate uh, a few weeks ago when Wayne Rooney announced that this was that he was cutting his contract short and he was going back with the agreement of of DC United. Uh, and so next, the question is: Look, you just signed Wayne Rooney. You got to sign somebody else. And the rumors come out that this, that Medsid Ozil could possibly be uh, a, a replacement. Look, I don't think that Medsid Ozil is the player or the person necessarily that. DC wants to replace Wayne Rooney. Now, Wayne Rooney uh, came in, and despite the fact that he's leaving early, he lived up to billing. And not only that, he, ch- he fundamentally changed the team in the way that he played, in the way that he led on the field, and he made everybody better around him. Medsid Ozil is a luxury player. Now, he's, he's a wonderful player, and if Metsud Ozil is pulling the strings in an MLS midfield slash attack, that's something that that piques my curiosity. I just don't think that for DC United, that's the appropriate player right now. And no, no, look, they could change and things could happen, but it's <laughs> you can't afford a luxury player in MLS. You got to be really, really sure. And so if you're looking at a guy like Metsud Ozil. I'm just my, my, my short answer is not for DC United, but that doesn't necessarily mean not for MLS. I think there's some other places that he could possibly fit, but not for uh, not for DC United. What about you, Mossy? You think that that works? Yeah, that, that is definitely not a like for like replacement for Wayne Rooney in terms of like work ethic on the field. <laughs> You're right. It, it has to be the right situation for Oza where you can accommodate his playing style. Next up. At Chris Awesome 63 how do you feel about uh, the U.S. Federation not contacting our young dual Nats with other federations meeting with them? Interesting question, and we get this a lot, and for, for those that maybe don't understand what he's talking about, we have, uh, and we've had for many, many years, but we certainly have even more so now the opportunity, and I call it an opportunity, of having a lot of dual nationals out there that could potentially play for the U.S. men's national team, U.S. women's national team if, uh, if they're female, uh, or other places around the world. And this decision process happens. And U.S. soccer at times has come under criticism when a player decides not to play for the U.S. and then talks about how they weren't contacted or they weren't shown enough respect or they weren't shown consistent love from the U.S. Soccer Federation. I go back and forth on this. My initial reaction has been over the years that it comes from a more romantic standpoint in that I I want players to want to play for the U.S. I want them to only want to play for the U.S., if given if given that choice, I want them to decide on their own. You know what? This is the team that I want to play in. But I recognize that that might be, once again, a, a little romantic. And in a, from a practical standpoint, it doesn't always work like that. And so the ability to recruit, I think, is is vital, especially nowadays. You're never going to get to everybody. And that's, that's okay. You want to try to get to as many people as possible and let them know you are on the radar. Uh, and uh, recruiting in, in college is something that's been around for years and years and years. And it is an art. I mean, recruiting in life is an art because you have to know how much to kiss ass and how much to come in and kind of take a step away and say, we want you. We're not promising you anything. We believe you're a good player, but we want you to want to come and play for us. 
and almost that meeting of meeting, meet me halfway. And so it's, like I said, it's an art and it's a skill and some people have it and some people don't. And if you're U.S. soccer, you better have people that are able to keep in contact, whether it's phone calls, whether it's home visits, whether it's going and watching them play, whether it's text messages, whatever it ends up being, keeping people in contact so they know where they stand so that if and when that time comes, or when that time comes for them to make a decision, that they are making it with the understanding that this is a place that wants them but is not guaranteeing them anything. And I think that's a, that's a difficult balance. But I'm not... When, when a player says, well, they didn't, you know, they didn't call me or I never heard from them, yeah, it, it, it makes me scratch my head, but I also know that you're never going to get everybody. And as I've said many, many times before, not every player, just because he or she is a good soccer player, is right for the national team. We're talking about 11 people on a field in a country of 350 million people, 11, getting 11 people on the field to represent your country. And it comes, you know, 23 players when it, comes to, when it comes to a team. And just because you have a good soccer player doesn't mean that that good soccer player should be on the national team or fits in with the national team. So there might be points where you say, this guy's a good player, but I'm not going to waste my time and resources running after him or her when I know that what we're building, and that comes from Ernie Stewart, and then that goes through Greg Berhalter and all the other uh, uh, national teams out there, when what we're building, this player doesn't fit in. So why would you spend time uh, going out there and recruiting somebody that you don't believe is right for your program? No, no college coach would ever do that. There's plenty of great college players whether in, in any sport that end up going to other, other schools and, and they can complain and say, well, this guy never contacted me or this guy never talked to me or this guy didn't show me any love or didn't give me, give me a, uh, a scholarship. Because you got to make your decisions as to what is going to be best and what that best fit is going to be. So I go back and forth, but I still end up coming to that romantic notion of playing for your country is something special and it should be something special and you should feel something that you don't feel for anything else in your life. All right, we'll end with a fun one. At Lightning Surge wants to know, did you ever finish Game of Thrones? So I started and binged Game of Thrones as far as I possibly could before we left for Europe. And then when I got to Europe, I found out that my HBO thing didn't work. And so I had this, this gap and I was almost done. So I came back and yes, I did finish Game of Thrones. I enjoyed it. It was at times glorious and at times incredibly complicated and confusing. I felt like I needed to have, uh, have notes. I was not as underwhelmed as many of you that watched it in real time when it was coming out and especially where you thought that it jumped the shark uh, at, at the end. You know, I, I, and it's not that I saw it coming. There were plenty of twists and, and turns uh, along the way, but I enjoyed it all the way to the end. What I was not, what, I, what, what didn't happen though, I was not left wanting more. When it got to the end, and obviously I knew it was the end, I said, okay, that's great. I, I, I've, I think this has gone as far as it possibly can. No, they'll probably go farther, but I, I think it's gone as far, as far as it possibly can. And there are certain, certain things where you say, oh, gosh, I, I need that fix. I wish, I wish I could see what was happening. I wish there was more. I didn't feel that. It was finite in a, in a, in a good way. And maybe that's just that whole arc was perfectly timed to finish up to leave me with uh, leave me with that feeling. But I know you guys were all crazy about the way that it ended and that final what was it six or eight episode uh, season that they had, and it was probably never going to 
be enough or what everybody wanted and never it never can be but I was pleasantly surprised and keep keep in mind I was coming at it waiting for that moment where I felt like it jumped the shark uh, or that I was underwhelmed and unimpressed with the final right now by the way a good time in television for me succession is back a show that I love on HBO uh, season two of Mindhunter dropped on Netflix this past week and a show I, I love Peaky Blinders I believe comes back in October and I also have Chernobyl in the queue, uh, a show that uh, Keith Cossigan raves about has urged me to, to watch. So uh, I've got some things going on. I, re- I, I did see Chernobyl. I binged, I binged Chernobyl. It was, it was interesting. Um, it was dark. I mean, literally dark, but not in like a Game of Thrones way. Well, actually, maybe like a Game of Thrones way. Maybe, maybe HBO just doesn't want to use any lighting because <laughs> it was very dark, uh, darkly shot and stuff like that but it was cool it was uh it was good i really enjoyed it uh as much as one can enjoy a human and uh natural catastrophe that uh that occurred over there uh, so many years ago all right anything else here on our uh, ask alexi segment nope that's it all right moving on the back three all right it's time for our back three where we look at some big stories and games and moments mossy what do we have in our back three this week uh, we start with uh, MLS expansion. By the time you hear this podcast, St. Louis might have already been announced as team number 28. A lot of talk that Sacramento could be team number 29. And what are your thoughts on that? And assuming they keep going, what other cities do you see as sort of next in line? So St. Louis, uh, I think, ticks a number of boxes. I think it's a city that they have had their eyes on from a Midwest perspective for a number of years. Uh, they, MLS, when I say they, I mean MLS loves rivalries and loves proximity in order to have teams travel in order to establish rivalries. And I think St. Louis coming in, as everybody knows, just from a, a sporting perspective and a histor- historical perspective, I think it's a no-brainer. And so when this gets announced, I don't think it's going to be to the surprise of, uh, of anybody. And I'm excited. I'm actually, in a few weeks, I'm going to St. Louis for the uh, U.S. game. U.S. is playing Uruguay. The men's team is playing Uruguay in, in St. Louis. And I'm actually going to go in a little early because I have not spent a lot of time in St. Louis over the years. I used to play there and play some soccer and stuff like that, but I haven't spent a whole lot of time in what I guess would be considered new St. Louis. And so I want to go there and kind of get the lay of the land in anticipation of this becoming an MLS team uh, and obviously an MLS community and see what type of culture we're talking about when it comes to, uh, to soccer. There, I've done some games over the years, but I just haven't spent a whole lot of time there. The Sacramento situation, you know, always the bridesmaid, <laughs> never the bride. I, and, I, and I think we talked about this before. I just don't see... At this point, other than it being turnkey and there and available and them willing to pay the expansion fee, it's, it's a team that I don't know what, how, how it makes everybody better. And keep in mind, this is a single entity in MLS. The collective is the most important part. And so how, if I'm an owner, if I'm an MLS, how does having Sacramento come in make it better? both in, in terms of the market or what it's going to be. Now, it might be a juggernaut of a small market team that comes in and does great numbers and has an incredible environment. We know already it's a soccer town and has a soccer culture. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it will back its way into MLS finally. That's not a bad thing, uh, but I don't think that they are going to have parades or anything at the at, at the thought of Sacramento finally becoming a part of Major League Soccer. Parades, I mean, and, and celebratory type of situations outside of Sacramento. Sacramento's going to celebrate. Maybe they'll have a parade. And we welcome them in. I think it's going to be fun uh, to have these types of teams in. 
And then after that, Mossy, you know, we've talked about all the, some of the usual suspects, whether it's Detroit or San Diego, um, uh, San Antonio, all these different uh, cities. I think there, I think there's, well, there's room for many, many more. But we also talked about East Coast and a, a potential that East Coast corridor down south of uh, D.C. and the and the Raleigh's and these types of places that I think potentially could be very attractive to MLS going forward. What else, Moss? Staying with MLS, it's Rivalry Week coming up, and we have a triple header on FS1 uh, next Sunday, which I know you're going to be a big part of. It starts with Cincinnati-Columbus, then FC Dallas against Houston, and then the nightcap is LAFC against the Galaxy. How excited are you for that day? Oh, I can't wait. Uh, I'm going to be actually out at LAFC uh, at the stadium downtown for the LAFC LA Galaxy game for the whole triple header. We're going to be broadcasting throughout the entire day from uh, the stadium there. And What's the stadium called at LAFC? I can't remember. What's it called, uh, Mossy? Bank of California. Bank of California. There we go. I want to make sure we keep our well, not ours, but general soccer sponsors, people that spend money on soccer, happy. Uh, Bank of California Stadium uh, in Los Angeles. So we'll be there for the whole triple header. I can't wait. Look, uh, LA Galaxy and Zlatan in particular are in the heads of LAFC. So this is a huge game. LAFC's already wrapped up the supporter shield as far as I'm concerned, and they already they were the first ones already to qualify for the playoffs. So they have been a juggernaut this season, but they're problem team has been the Los Angeles Galaxy and so I think that there is incentive to just because it's a rivalry and because it's LA Galaxy for LAFC to show that they need to nip this in the bud and 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 make sure that LA doesn't come in once again to their house uh, and get into their uh, get into their head I am interested in the hell is real over there in Ohio and the continuation of that even though the teams are not very good right now with Columbus and Cincinnati it this transcends the record or where you are it's about as it should be, a rivalry within a state. And this is one of the things that excited people about having Cincinnati come in relative to Columbus. And this will be something, because I don't think either of these teams are going to make the playoffs, but this will be something to hang their hat on. And we've seen this in different places where big rivalries exist, where you can have a bad season, but as long as you're able to say, we beat, in this case it would be either Columbus or Cincinnati, that uh, we will take that and you need look no further than in some place like Ohio when you have Ohio State and Michigan even when it's a bad season you want to make sure that you win that game so I'm excited for that whole day it's going to be fun coming to you from uh, downtown Los Angeles at Bank of California I'm all right Mossy, what in, else I'm gonna throw in a bonus MLS question which is not on the rundown before we move on to the next back three topic what did you make of Wayne Rooney's tweet about charter flights well you know what he should do uh if he lived up to his contract and stayed, he could be actually part of the group that negotiates the next CBA and therefore can get charters in, uh, in the next collective bargaining agreement for the players. I mean, that could be his legacy. He could be the one that demanded it and ultimately negotiated it, and that would be what he left, which would be wonderful for a lot of players. So for those don't, that don't know, Wayne Rooney, uh, DC lost in Vancouver the other day, and he was lamenting the loss, but also the fact that they had a 12-hour travel day back that could, if they were chartering, take six hours. He also said, uh, you know, he hashtagged it MLS, hashtagged it charter flights, and basically shrugged his shoulders and said, but this is MLS. All right, Wayne Rooney understands exactly what MLS is. He should have understood it before he even got here. This is nothing new. And once again, the I, I, I have no problem with uh, charter flights being allowed. But keep in mind, 
why they are not. Number one, they weren't negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement. Well, it doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean that you shouldn't give it to the players, but it's something that's going to be negotiated going forward. And, here's, and guess what? This is what the, eventually, the players are going to get it, and they think they, they're going to think they got something. And the, the, club, the clubs recognize that eventually you're going to have to give it to them anyway, and it's going to feel like they got something, but they really didn't get anything at all. But it will force owners that don't want to spend money, and this is what they are always guarding against, and that's why they call it a competitive advantage. It will force owners that aren't doing it or don't want to do it to do it because players aren't going to want to come if you're not doing it. And if, if you are not doing it, you're going to get the pressure internally from the players that you already have, and it's going to be used as an excuse as to whether you played well, uh, well or not. So that it came from Wayne Rooney is great because it's a great platform, but the should, he shouldn't be surprised, but it doesn't mean... You know, he can't complain about it. I mean, I don't think that this was a Zlatan-esque type of complaint storm when it came to what was going on. And he can certainly still be frustrated and literally uncomfortable at what's happening when it comes to charters. But I think if he if he stayed around, I think he would reap the benefits of what the next collective borrowing agreement is going to look like. And some of those charter flights and more of those charter flights would happen for him and his colleagues. All right, Wayne Rooney makes for a nice segue to our next back three topic. Another weekend of VAR controversy in the Premier League. Of course, yet again, it's Gabriel Jesus victimized. He was denied a stoppage time winner in the uh, Manchester City Tottenham game. Now, this one might have been more of a IFAB rules issue rather than VAR, but what did you make of the conclusion of that game? Well... I thought that VAR did exactly what it was supposed to do. I thought the laws of the game did exactly what they are supposed to do. And yet, once again, this consternation and this desire to make somebody a little pregnant persists. And I just, I, I don't understand. Well, I understand it because I've already been through it. We already went through this. And when we came out the other side with the understanding. And so... And this is why I have so many times suggested that the law should just be always. If it hits your hand or your arm, it's a foul. And I know people go crazy when I, when I say that, but it, it would be so much more, more clear. And so now we have, once again, these think pieces and people talking about the loss of the beautiful game and the loss of the flow and the rhythm that they have come to know. And it was interesting to hear... Pep after the game, and not not that he didn't care about it, but I think he just shrugged his shoulders and said, "This is this is the new world that I live in." And I think what he wanted to say but didn't say was, "It never should have gotten to that point in the first place." It's not that they're not playing a good team, but they're still Man City, and if they, in the final seconds in extra time, are relying on a call like that in this day and age with VAR, and VAR spots it and lives up to the rules uh, the way that they are written, that's fine. And if you want to change the laws uh, out there, go ahead and change the laws, but don't get angry when they are actually enforced. Yeah, I didn't have as big an issue with this one. I mean, the ball clearly smacked off Laporte's arm and went in the direction of Jesus, so I think that that should be a handball. Uh, I do think you might be losing this argument as far as uh, not being a little pregnant. Uh, It just seems like you know, people aren't comfortable with this black and white nature of things. And there's a lot of pressure to return to the ambiguity of having laws written in such a way where it's clear and obvious and blatant. And as you correctly point out, that opens up a whole other can of worms. 
but there's a lot of wind in that direction. And I think, you know, I already, you know, IFAB last week already said they're going to revisit the offsides rule and try to write it in such a way where it's, it's has to be clear and obvious. And, you know, you saw in that, in the decisive penalty in that UEFA Super Cup, the Liverpool goalkeeper, Adrian, was clearly off the line on Tammy Abraham's penalty, and nobody had a big issue with it afterwards. So we're sort of back in the men's game. We saw how they called it in the Women's World Cup, but in the men's game, we're back to that rule being sort of laxly enforced and, and not really being a real rule. So, I mean, I, I think there's there's some pushback already towards sort of the black and white nature of VAR, and people, for whatever reason, prefer kind of the, the gray areas that we had before. So we'll see where it all ends up. You know, I, I will say, you know, I've, I've been... I've been saying that VAR is still in this trial and error period and it's a work in progress, but IFAB came out and said it's going to take 10 years maybe for it to be perfected, which, uh, I mean, that even caught me off guard. I mean, I mean, are you, are you down with that? Or, I mean, does that feel like a little bit too long for us to have to wait for them to figure all this stuff out? No, I don't think it's going to take that long, but I do think that there is going to be this uncomfortable period for some for, and for many that haven't gone through it that they are going to have to get through and get over the hump. And we talked about last week how an entire generation isn't going to care because this is going to be part of what they do. I was thinking this morning, uh, Mossy, as people continue to scream and yell and, and long for days gone by when there was much more subjective part of the game and the nuance and the gray area and all that kind of stuff, there, there should come a point where teams play, teams that use VAR, teams that, uh, and, and leagues should play games in that old way, uh, under the old set of laws and the way that the, the game was officiated, and see, see the difference. Because sometimes we're going to lose track of what it actually looked like back then. And we romanticize things, and we think that, that it was better. And it's not, all, it's not always better. And how are you going to keep, <laughs> you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen VAR? I think it's really, really difficult for them to put anything back, you know, into the can here that's that, that's already out. And I th- and I think I think they will hurt the game more by trying to go backwards than forcing it to go forward, despite the fact that it is going to be painful for a lot, and there is going to be a, I think, a long period of adjustment. Ten years, no. And to make our producer Alex Dowd happy, uh, we'll touch on Chelsea. Alex Dowd, by the way, was furious about that penalty in the Super Cup. Uh, he's still complaining about it. But uh, uh, this past weekend, Chelsea uh, won all draw at home against Leicester. And, and listen, Chelsea, to me, have been forced due to circumstances to finally take a long-term view of things. Lampard feels to me like a manager that, that might be there for a long time. And he's giving an opportunity to a lot of young players who I like, who I think have a bright future, you know, Guys like Hudson Odoi and Loftus Cheek are injured right now, but who, who are, are very talented players. And you've got your Mounts and your Abrahams and your Pulisics. So I think there there are brighter days ahead for sure. And obviously that transfer ban is going to lift and they're going to be able to sign players. Uh, but I think for this season to think that Chelsea are going to finish in the top four is a real leap of faith. I mean, you're expecting the best case scenario for too many players in that squad that I'm not sure are ready to win big Premier League matches yet. I mean, that, that's sort of my overall take on Chelsea. But uh, Christian Pulisic did start this match. Uh, what did you make of his performance? Okay, hold on. Before I get to Christian Pulisic, so are you saying that this Chelsea team is a developmental type of team and that's what Chelsea has become, a developmental type of team? I mean, when we're screaming and yelling, when we, when, when people and certainly at times us are screaming and yelling that how, how far the mighty have fallen when it comes to Manchester United or something like that, do you think that this is by design? This is just the way that all super clubs are going to, uh, are going to go? 
and, and so you asked me about how long VAR before they come out the other side. So how long is this development under Chelsea? If I'm a Chelsea season ticket holder, how long do I have to watch the experimentation? How long do I have to watch the development before I get to look at Chelsea in the way that I have always looked at Chelsea as a super club that someone should that where it shouldn't even be a question that you're competing for the top four? I would say for the next couple of years, Alex Dowd uh, needs to get used to Europa League Thursdays. I think that's what we're we're looking at. Uh, but like I said, that that listen that 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 ban uh, will lift, and and they're still one of the richest clubs in the world, so they they could go out in one transfer window and go nuts and and change the complexion of the whole thing. But it's just you know a lot of people have been sort of talking about how this is actually like a likable Chelsea team. It's, it's kind of different to see a team with sort of this young manager who's who's not quite there yet and Lampard, but is sort of showing signs that he could be really good and a lot of talented young players that are still kind of putting it all together. It is a different feel than we've seen for the last 15 years, so it is kind of interesting to watch. Uh, so, I mean, we'll see. But, uh, but Pulisic, what, what did you make of his performance? So Pulisic, he was not great. Uh, he was not horrible. And that's not good. You, you, you kind of, you want, him, you want him to be displaying a consistency. And over the last couple of years, he has not done that. Let's be, let's be honest. Despite the fact that everybody recognizes his talent, he had a lack of consistency. And some of that was related to injury, but even that goes to consistency. Your ability to stay healthy and your ability to produce a certain level is what ultimately generates your value to both in terms of money and in terms of uh, to, to a team. And so if we, if we got this yo-yo effect that is starting to happen when it comes to Christian Pulisic, where it's, it's glimpses here, it's one game that plays well here, another game, and eh, not so well. One game he's a starter, one game he's, he, he's a not. That's, that's not a good thing. Now, it's early days, and I still think that in the scenario that you are describing for what Chelsea is, that there is, a, there is a place. And for example, this week, I thought he was really good in the Super Cup. And then this weekend, I, I don't know. But from a, from a, a more importantly right now and bigger, bigger picture, Chelsea's got to get winning. They got to get some points, uh, or they're not even going to be <laughs> in your in Europa League. So that's uh, uh, Frank Lampard. He has his work cut out for him right now. I do think that work will include Christian Pulisic, but in this particular scenario, you you got to be bringing it. Not just because of the price tag, but because of the fact that there is opportunity, and you are as good if not better than plenty of players out there. But until you actually prove it from a consistent basis, the jury is going to be out when it comes to Christian Pulisic in the Chelsea context. Let me just say, uh, I know some people were offended by my Mossy Makes the Case last week, and rightly so. And reflecting on it, I did come off like a bit of a jerk. But I do think there's an interesting conversation to be had about club versus country fandom as it relates to Pulisic this season. And Turner apparently thought so as well, because they had fun with that during that UEFA Super Cup when they did a whole bit on what an American Liverpool fan must be thinking the moment that Pulisic had that great assist to Giroud for the goal, and they showed somebody like smiling and frowning at the same time. So kind of the same concept I was going for there. So listen, if Turner thought that was worth putting on television, then you know it's good because their coverage is excellent. Um, <laughs> We'll end on this. The Bundesliga got underway this past weekend. Bayern Munich held to a 2-2 draw by Hertha Berlin, while Dortmund and Leipzig both had emphatic victories. Let me say this. I've been talking about uh, the title race 
from the standpoint of Dortmund and Bayern and just sort of mentioning Leipzig in passing, I've kind of changed my mind on that. Uh, I know they were facing Union Berlin, or as Kate Abder would say, Union Berlin, but I can sort of take quality of opposition into account and, and still feel like I, I like the whole look and feel of that Leipzig team under Nagelsmann and sort of reminding myself of how many good players they have. I mean, the fact that they were able to put out such a strong starting lineup and then bring on guys like Forsberg and Unkunku off the bench in the second half. And then you think about the guys that weren't even playing like Upa Meccano and Tyler Adams. So, I mean, they are loaded this season. And if they hold on to everybody here, the rest of this transfer window, I actually think now we're looking at a three-team race and a really fun season in the Bundesliga. Did you buy that? Okay, so wait, who are your three again? Uh, Dortmund, Bayern, Leipzig. And, and by the way, I'm not the only one that feels yes. that way. Uh, we did some predictions uh, this weekend. Uh, we taped a segment for predictions that we're going to hold on to for later on in the campaign and see how they played out. And Keith Kosigan picked Leipzig to win the title, while uh, Jovan Karofsky went with Dortmund, but he put Leipzig second and Bayern third, if you can believe that. Wow. Wow. Well, that would be that would be something, but it wouldn't be crazy given what you just said and certainly what we have seen so far. Uh, who do they play? They're uh, Leipzig's at home this, uh, this week against Frankfurt, right? Yeah. So they looked wonderful and they just continue on and they seem to be this this juggernaut. Uh, and I think we are right to put them in the conversation with regards to winning the, winning the league. And I would agree that if you had to rank the teams right now, that I would put them above, uh, above Bayern Munich. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't still pick Bayern Munich uh, to win the league ultimately when all this is, uh, all this is said and done. But they were, they were fun to watch, and they destroyed, and I'm going to say Union Berlin. We had this conversation over text uh, <laughs> as everybody was going on. And uh, Ian Joy and Kate, I'm sure, are going to try to get me to say, what is it? Union Berlin. I'm going to call it Union Berlin in my Midwestern accent right now. But Union Berlin, uh, welcome to the show. But, <laughs> but it, was, it, was not good, uh, it was not good from them. But on the other side, I absolutely agree that Leipzig right now is put some money on that right now because they the odds are going to only get uh, less and less as, uh, as this team continues to go through uh, the Bundesliga. And I'll be back Bundesliga-ing this weekend with the guys in the studio in L.A. Excellent. Let me let me address the Coutinho move to Bayern. I'm pretty confident he'll play well, but whether we'll see like peak Coutinho, I'm not so sure. Uh, my, the biggest issue with Coutinho is that he's lost some explosiveness to his game. He was never an out-and-out -out winger, but if you played him in one of those wide attacking positions, of course he was bringing more of a playmaking component uh, to that, but he, he was still quick enough earlier in his career to, to blow past the fullback and do some wingerish things. And that element of his game seems to have vanished completely. So it's made him, frankly, kind of a tweener in a 4-3-3 system because he doesn't defend enough to be one of those three midfielders. And he's not really dynamic enough anymore to be uh, one of those wide attacking players in, in, in a 4-3-3. So Niko Kovac is going to have to figure that out. But, I mean, the larger point here is if you look at the way this deal is structured... It's a one-season loan with an option to buy for 120 million euros, which is a fee Bayern are never going to pay for him next summer. So this really is just a one-season rental. And it, it, from a Barcelona perspective, they're essentially just kicking the can down the road for a year. Uh, they, you know, they get his salary off the books for this season, so that's nice. But he's going to be back there next summer, and they're going to have to figure out again what the heck they're going to do with him. And from a Bayern perspective, what it tells you is at one point this summer, they thought this was going to be the window 
window in which they were going to go nuts and spend all this money and rejuvenate that squad. And they've now pushed that back a year. So I think it's going to be summer 2020 when they're going to sign Timo Werner, make another big run at Leroy Sané. But this has become now kind of a transition season. And yet they're Bayern Munich, so they can't blow it off completely. So they're trying to make some stopgap moves here in getting guys like Coutinho and Perisic so they can still have sort of a credible season by Bayern Munich standards before they, they, they really go nuts in the transfer market next summer. So I think that's what's happening here with this Coutinho move. But we'll see if it's enough because, like I said, I think Dortmund and Leipzig are very, very good. Yeah, I'm excited to see Coutinho uh, for a number of reasons, not least which I think he's going to get given an opportunity and be given an opportunity to change our perspective and perception of what he is, but also what Bayern Munich is in this year. Because right now it's it's not good so far. One of the first words that Kate that Kate Abdo ever taught me was what the German for crisis, Krisa, and. Uh, there is already a crisa when it comes to what Bayern Munich is in this 2019-20 season. Uh, that's good because it gives us a lot to talk about. And it's also good because this type of super club, I don't look at it in the way that you look at Chelsea right now. I still look at it as they are not resigned to the fact that they are not going to compete for the title. Nor should they be because they are still Bayern Munich. But... Even Bayern Munich, you can't just turn it on and off and expect it to be there. And if they expect either the other teams to falter or for them to turn it on, they're going to need more than continue right now. Or they're going to need the players that they have right now to play a whole lot better because this is, this is not good enough for them to once again win the Bundesliga, let alone Champions League. And one American note, uh, Zach Steffen had an excellent performance in his Bundesliga yep. debut for Dusseldorf. They won away to Bremen. That was nice to see, huh? Steffen playing well. I love it. Uh, I love that the you know the number one for the U.S. team uh, is at a place where he's playing, where he's being challenged, and the response after the game is to point to him and say, this guy had a really, really good game. It's great for his confidence. Uh, going forward, and it's great for the U.S. national team uh, from a uh, goalkeeping perspective. So I love it. I love it. Anything else, Bundesliga? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, my one big thing uh, from today's podcast goes back to our uh, State of the Union in a, at a time when we are talking so much about politics in sports. And that's, as I said before, not necessarily a bad thing. But for those that don't want to go to a soccer game or any sporting event and have politics or political messages be shoved in their face. It can probably be a interesting and maybe at times a trying time because it's only going to get more and more. Uh, I don't fear that, but I just, I mean, that's, that's the way that this is heading. What I do fear, as I mentioned in the State of the Union, that if and when that happens, the potential for people to uh, be harmed, for people to get hurt, uh, for the safety of people in these environments that should be safe and that we should do everything possible to make safe, that that could, uh, that that could be a problem. Let's be honest. Uh, when it comes to soccer in the United States, the, when a, a left, liberal, democratic sort of, um, or democrat sort of view plays a whole lot better than a right, conservative, Republican, Republican type of view. That's just the way that soccer is. And the 
you know, the, the spectators and the people that, that gravitate to it. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's, uh, that's fine. But the reality is that when we go to these games, we are within a group. And we want that group to enjoy themselves. And we want that, uh, that group to be safe. And while everything certainly can be political, not everything is political. And one of the great things about sports is that I or you can go to a sporting event and sit down next to somebody that I might have, as I said, nothing in common with, or somebody that I don't ever want to hang out with for whatever reason. But I can still enjoy this beautiful game, this game that we love. We can still cheer and we can still bask in the environment that is a professional uh, sporting event. And I don't want that taken away from anybody. I want, whether it's Major League Soccer or NWSL or, or any professional league out there that is selling soccer, I want that to be inclusive to everybody, even people that I disagree with, even people that aren't necessarily even nice people. As long as they're not doing anything to mess up my experience or your experience, then guess what? They, got, they have every right to be there. And I hope we don't go down the path that other leagues and other countries and other cultures, unfortunately, have had to deal with. Maybe it's inevitable, and maybe that is progress when it comes to soccer. I hope it isn't, because I've always said that I think that we can, and we have the opportunity to create something really unique and really authentic and really different than the rest of the world. And I hope we don't lose sight of that. And I hope we don't kill this wonderful thing that we've worked so hard to get to this point. Still got a long, long way to go. And there will be ups and downs and good and bad, uh, good and bad moments. And I don't know what soccer in the United States is going to look like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line. I just hope there is soccer in the United States 10 years, 30, 20 years, and 30 years down the line. And if that means that there is a huge political aspect to the game. Okay, if that's what we as the soccer people decide is right for the game going forward, okay. But in doing so, we need to recognize that we are not being inclusive, this word that we throw around. In a strange way, we are being the exact same, the, the thing that we fight against the most by being exclusive and excluding people because they may think about things differently than we do. And I'm not sure we want to do that. But it's up to us. It's up to us to decide what our soccer looks like on the field and off the field. And it will change as we go along, and it will continue to change long after I'm gone and I've done talking and screaming yelling about soccer. Mossy, uh, I will see you next week in Los Angeles. I can't wait to get back home to be with all of you. Anything uh, before we leave? Well, I know you've been touting this uh, new studio of ours. They better get to work on that in the next week because it still looks like a closet to me. <laughs> well, if anybody that has done construction out there knows uh, the best laid plans and all, it will, it will probably take a little longer, and that's okay as long as ultimately it gets done and we get the things done to upgrade what we have in the studio. But either way, we'll, we will be recording from there, and eventually it will get done, uh, and it will get done so that we have better 
experience from what we're in there, and most importantly, that we give everybody out there a better experience. And I want to thank you, uh, as always, for tuning in to the State of the Union. We appreciate everybody hanging out with us and listening to us. Please use that hashtag AskAlexi out there on social media. Send us questions, comments, concerns that we can uh, read over uh, when we do the podcast for uh, for Mossy. And let us know anything. Let us know uh, the, the things that you are thinking about. It. Uh, we can always improve, and we always need as much help and constructive criticism that we can possibly uh, get. All right. Thanks, Mossy. Thanks, everybody. As always, size the day.